Well, good morning. It's great to be with you on this special Sunday. This is, after all, Spring Break Sunday. You knew that, right? This is the week that everybody leaves town. So thanks for sticking around. We're glad you're here. I was Friday night, I went up to Vitaly's to pick up a pizza about 7 o'clock or so. And as I'm driving up to Vitaly's, the parking lot's only about half full. I'm thinking, what's going on? What's, Vitaly's is always jammed. And then I get over to the section where you park when you're picking up carryout, and there's no cars in the line. So, whoa, jackpot. Then I realized, oh, yeah, Forest Hills, Ada, Cascade. It's the annual migration. It's like zebras heading down to the new country. They all go to Florida or Colorado or someplace because it's spring break week. Well, thanks for sticking around. Uh, if you're a teacher, enjoy this week off as much as your students are. Probably more than your students are because we know what it's like to be a teacher these days. So thanks for, for being here. It's good to be with you. And we're going to take a look at that familiar Palm Sunday story, but hopefully from a slightly different angle. Hopefully you'll see it a little differently than maybe what you've heard in the past. And it's because Palm Sunday isn't just a random day that Jesus chose to enter Jerusalem. It wasn't just, oh, I think today's a good day. Let's go in and make a statement. Palm Sunday was set thousands of years earlier. There's a historical piece that we're going to explore today to help us understand the significance of Palm Sunday. We remember Jesus' triumphant entry. We remember the palm branches and the robes that were laid out on the floor, on the ground for him to come in on. They celebrated him as king of the Jews, but did they know what they meant when they celebrated him as king of the Jews? You see, one of the reasons I'm fascinated with Palm Sunday is because of what happens within just a few days' time. If you think about it, on Palm Sunday, people celebrate the arrival of Jesus in Jerusalem, and they, they praise him as the king of the Jews. And then just a few days later, a lot of those same people are standing there saying, crucify him, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. What was that all about? What made that transition? What made that change? That's part of what we want to look at today. Now, is there more to Jesus and the triumphant entry than just that simple thing of entering Jerusalem? Obviously. But before I tell you about it, I want to tell you about another triumphant entry that took place. Because as I was doing my prep work for today, I came across this story about, well, it's December 4, 1977. And the world is witnessing the coronation, the inauguration, the installation of His Imperial Majesty, Bokassa I, the Emperor of the Central African Empire. He had been president for a dozen years or so, 10 years or so, but he decided being president of the country wasn't enough, that he needed more. And so he declared himself the emperor of the Central African Empire. And it was quite the event. At 10.10 a.m., the blast of trumpets and the roll of drums announced the approach of His Majesty. The procession began with eight of Bokasa's 29 official children. Now, that raised a couple questions for me. I don't know if it did for you. Like, where are the other 21? And why aren't they invited to be part of the procession? And the fact that he has 29 official children, 
that make you wonder anything? Like, are there unofficial children? We don't know, at least I don't know. I just thought it was curious that only eight made the cut. The other 21 are in the bleacher someplace, I guess. And there may be other children that just aren't acknowledged. Anyway, eight of the children come. And then comes his heir to the throne, Bokasa II, who was dressed in a white admiral's uniform with gold braid, which also struck me curious that he's wearing an admiral's uniform in a landlocked country. Well, come on, it's better than that. I mean, how can you be an admiral when you don't have water and ships? Uh, anyway, he follows. And then Catherine, the favorite wife, the favorite of nine of Bocasa's wives, followed. She's wearing a dress that costs $73,000 and is strewn with pearls. Then the emperor arrives in his imperial coach, which is decked out with golden eagles and pulled by six matched Anglo-Norman horses. As the marine band strikes up the new hymn, the sacred march of his majesty, Emperor Bokasa stepped forward. He's cloaked in a 32-pound robe, which is decorated with 785,000 pearls and, of course, gold embroidery because you can't be an emperor without gold. He wore white gloves, white slippers, which were covered with white pearls. And on his head, he wore a gold crown worth $2.5 million that was topped with an 80-carat diamond. <clears throat> As the sacred march came to a close, Bokasa seats himself on a $2.5 million eagle throne. The price tag for that whole event that day is estimated to be somewhere in the range of $25 million. Now that's 45 years ago, so you can imagine what it would cost today. But more tragic to me is the fact that his country is impoverished. And he, in this puffed-up pride sense, felt himself worthy of spending millions of dollars while his people struggled to survive. It was quite the triumphant entry. Now, if you were to plan the triumphant entry of a king into the capital city, is that the way you would do it? Probably. I mean, we'd look for some pomp and circumstance. We'd look for some ceremony. We'd, we'd expect some finery of some sort. <clears throat> That's kind of what we think about when we think about the triumphant entry of a king into his capital city. Except that, well, Jesus didn't seem to think so. Today we're going to take a look at what an early follower of Jesus named John had to say about the triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem and all of the events that surround it. Because you see, there's so much more going on than what we initially see when we read it just on the surface. And one of the things that excites me is being able to look a little more deeply to find out that when Jesus entered, there was a whole historical piece that set the stage for his entry and his death that first Palm Sunday and that first Good Friday. <clears throat> As we pick up the story, I want to remind you that the people of Israel are gathering in Jerusalem for their most sacred of all remembrances. It's Passover time. <clears throat> it's one of the most significant times in the Jewish year. And at Passover, the Jews remember how God freed the people of Israel from Egypt where they were in slavery. <clears throat> and so they come together 
to remember backwards what God had done in years prior. But now they also begin to look forward. They look forward to a time when the Messiah will come and he will deliver them from the oppression that they have lived under for years, centuries perhaps. So there's a backwards look at Passover, but there's always a forward look at Passover. And that's part of what creates the confusion along the way. Jews from all over the world will come to Jerusalem for Passover. And it's estimated that the normal population of Jerusalem would have been about 20,000 persons. But when Passover takes place, the population swells. Joseph, a first, or Josephus, rather, a first century Jewish historian, says that at Passover, the population of Jerusalem swells to something around 3 million people. From 20,000 to 3 million. Imagine that. <clears throat> it's into this city, alive with this nationalistic zeal, the idea that there's a Messiah coming someday who will deliver us, even as we were delivered, our ancestors were delivered from Egyptian slavery. And Jesus is about to enter that city. This is how John writes about it. <clears throat> Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. The whole house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Bethany's a village about two miles east of Jerusalem, just on the other side of the Mount of Olives. It's an easy walk. You can't see Jerusalem because you're over the mount, but you know it's there. And people would regularly go across the Mount of Olives into the eastern gate, into the city of Jerusalem. And it's there in Bethany that Jesus stops with his disciples to share a meal with his dear friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Then John adds this interesting note as he tells us about what was happening. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there, and they came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Now think about that for just a quick second. They came to see Jesus because he's a miracle worker, right? But the big miracle was bringing Lazarus back from the dead. And so people gather because they want to see Jesus, but also I'd really like to check out Lazarus. Is he really alive? So there they all are. What's going on at the same time? So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Okay, Lazarus, Jesus raised you from the dead. And you now have a target on your back. The Jewish leaders know that they can't just kill Jesus. They also have to take care of Lazarus. Because Lazarus has become a witness to all the people around. And you can imagine, if you saw someone who you knew was dead, who had now been raised from the dead, you'd be awfully inclined to say, that Jesus is pretty amazing. I want to follow him too. So with all the people gathering, there are the religious leaders who begin to realize that they're in a real fix. The people were curious. They wanted to see Jesus. They also wanted to see Lazarus. 
And now they knew that they had to take care of two men. That not only was Jesus a problem, Lazarus is a problem for them. So what happens next? Well, John tells us. The next day, now we're going to come back to that, that those three words, those are significant. But we'll get to that in a second. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. The next day. To understand the next day, we need to go back a little bit. Well, we need to go back a long ways. We've got to go back 3,500 years. We have to go back to the time of the Exodus, when God delivered his people out of Egypt and brought them to the land of promise. At the end of Israel's 400 years of slavery in Egypt, God gave them some very specific instructions that are recorded for us in the Old Testament book of Exodus. This is what he said to them. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb from his fam- for his family, one for each household. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. The 10th day of the month. Okay, hang with me now for a second because I'm going to introduce you to something that you probably have never heard of. It's called the Jewish calendar. And the 10th day of the month, in this particular instance, is the 10th day of Nisan, not the car. There were no Nisans at the time of Jesus. But the month Nisan, the 10th day of the, of the month, Nisan, in the Jewish calendar, each family was to choose a one-year-old lamb that had no defect. <clears throat> they're to bring it into their home, and they're to raise it there for five days. So I'm putting my, my head together with what this lamb is thinking. You know, I'm sure lambs think. He's thinking, I just hit the jackpot. I've been out here in the pen with all the other sheep and lambs, and I'm getting to be inside. I get to sleep with the kids. I get to eat really good food. It's warmer in here. It's not wet in here. Life is good. Little does he know what's happening in just a few days. But that's what the people of Israel did. They took this lamb. They brought it inside. They took care of it for five days. And then, just before sundown on Nisan 14... They were to slaughter the lamb and put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of their home. This was an act of obedience. This was an act of trust. That same night, the Lord would pass over every home when he saw the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. Again, back to Exodus chapter 12. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. He goes on. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Because a new Hebrew day begins at sundown. That same night is actually Nisan 15. And on this date, Nisan 15, Israel is delivered from Egypt. 
They pass through the Red Sea, and God redeems his people out of Egypt. Now, remember, Nisan 15. That's significant. Passover has been Judaism's transformative event ever since. And even still today, observant Jews are very mindful of Passover and the requirements surrounding Passover. When I was teaching at Michigan State University, go green, I had faculty members in my department who were observant Jews. And when the Jewish holidays came around, there was a difference for them in how they ate, what they ate, when they ate, all of those kinds of things. And Passover was a significant time for them. Passover is celebrated every year on Nisan 15. Sometimes it falls in March. Sometimes it falls in April on our Western calendar. But it's always, always Nisan 15. Now, side note. Have you ever wondered why Easter always seems to be a floating holiday? I mean, Thanksgiving is always on the fourth Thursday in, in November, right? And the 4th of July, well, that's the 4th of July. And Mother's Day is a fixed day. And there's a whole lot of fixed holidays, but Easter always seems to be moving target. And it's because of the Jewish calendar, Nisan 15. It, it, it's trying to stay consistent with that significant event, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, which coincides with the Passover. That's why this year the Passover, the Easter comes on the Sunday it does, but next year it'll be a different Sunday. Sometimes it's in March, sometimes it's in April, but it's always on Nissan 15. Now, let's circle back to John 12 and connect some of these dots, having now this little bit of background information about what was happening 3,500 years earlier. When Jesus shared dinner at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, it was six days before Passover. That means it was Nisan 9 in the Jewish calendar. The next day, which we saw referenced, would then be Nisan 10. It was on that same date, Nisan 10, that the Israelites were to bring lambs without blemish into their homes to care for them until the day of the sacrifice. Nisan 10 was a significant day because it remembers taking the lambs in. Now, I want to give you another quick side note. On the day, Nisan 10, when they remember what is happening historically, the high priest would leave the temple and go out the eastern gate, go across the Mount of Olives into the region of Bethany, where Jesus had dinner with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And in the region of Bethany, he would select a lamb without blemish, that he would then carry back through the eastern gate into the city to the celebration of the people around him because this was the lamb of deliverance. Later that day, Jesus left Bethany, crosses over the Mount of Olives, enters through the eastern gate just like the high priest had a few hours earlier and is celebrated on his arrival just like the high priest was celebrated. Only now this is the Lamb of God, one without blemish, who is coming into the city 
as the Messiah, the deliverer of God's people. 1,500 years earlier, at the time of the Passover in Egypt, Jesus now enters riding on a donkey, and the date is Nisan 10. The crowds who were in Jerusalem to celebrate Passover met him in that dramatic fashion that we've heard about. John writes of it this way in John chapter 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, and they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, and this is what they said, Hosanna, which means save us or save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Unfortunately, as they celebrated Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem that day, they missed the full significance of what was happening. You see, two things were happening simultaneously, but they only saw one. The people saw Jesus fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah, who 575 years earlier had written this prophetic statement. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Your king comes to you, and he's riding on a donkey. And they saw Jesus entering, this miracle worker, this one who raised Lazarus from the dead. And they're thinking, he is our coming Messiah, our king, our ruler, our deliverer, our redeemer. We will soon be free of Roman oppression. That's what they saw. This was a prophecy the people knew well. This was a prophecy they had been waiting to be fulfilled. And when Jesus passes through the eastern gate, riding on a donkey, they proclaim him now as their savior, their king, but only with the perspective of deliverance from Roman oppression. Nothing else. What they didn't see was God's selection of Jesus as the final Passover lamb. What they didn't see was Jesus, the lamb without defect, without blemish, who was about to be killed, slaughtered, crucified for their true deliverance. They were so focused on the idea that Jesus came to set them free from Roman oppression that they missed the real reason Jesus had come. Jesus, as he enters Jerusalem that first Palm Sunday, is the misunderstood Messiah. They just misunderstood why he was there and what he was going to do. Just a few days after Palm Sunday, on Nisan 15, as upwards of two. 150,000 lambs are sacrificed on the altar in the temple. Jesus is nailed to a cross on a hill just outside of town called Golgotha. On the same day that lambs are being slaughtered for the sins of the people, Jesus is being killed for the sins of the people. On Nisan 15, the date that celebrates God redeeming his people from slavery out of Egypt, Jesus dies on that Roman cross. 
and redeems his people, not from Rome, but from sin and death. And you begin to understand that what happened 3,500 years earlier was simply a precursor to what Jesus was coming to do and fulfill all of what God had set in motion way back in the time of Moses. So what does this all have to do with us? I mean, this is all really interesting stuff, and I get kind of geeked out about it because I think it's really cool when you begin to realize that all that stuff in the Old Testament, hey, that has meaning for us in the New Testament. But let me take my last couple of minutes to bring this Palm Sunday story home. The people of Jerusalem, as they welcomed Jesus into the city, as they celebrated his arrival as their king and deliverer, were really expecting Jesus to fulfill their desires and expectations. They expected Jesus to lead a revolt, a revolt against Rome that would gain freedom for the people of Israel from the oppression of Rome. That's what they wanted. That's what they were expecting. And that's what they wanted Jesus to do for them. And when he didn't do what they expected, they called for his crucifixion. So the question I have to ask is, are you and I any different today? Are we really different from them? We trust in Jesus. But then all too often we expect him to fulfill all of our desires, just like they did. We call him our Lord, and we say we're going to follow him, but when he doesn't do what we want him to do, when he doesn't give us what we desire, when he doesn't fulfill our expectations, we easily grow restless, frustrated, and sometimes even reject him and walk away. I've talked to way too many people over the years, in my years of ministry, who have said, I trusted him once, but then he didn't do what I expected him to do. He didn't heal my father from his illness. And I don't know if I can trust him anymore. So I quit. He didn't do what I wanted him to do when I asked him to help me to find the job. And he didn't help me to find the job. And so I gave up on him. He didn't meet my expectations. And I quit. Maybe we're not all that different from that Palm Sunday crowd. Maybe, just like them, we misunderstood why Jesus came. Here's what I want you to remember. It's our big idea for today. Jesus came to fulfill God's purposes, not to grant our desires. Jesus never said, I'm going to come and give you all your wishes, all your expectations, all your desires. He came to fulfill God's purposes. That's why he came. And that's what the people missed then. And I fear that sometimes that's what you and I miss as well. I recently asked a group of young people, young adults, what they hoped for. And here are five things that they said. They hoped for a good life and good health and a good job and a long life and a good family. Those are all good things. Those are all good hopes, all good expectations, all good desires. There's nothing wrong with any of those things until we expect that Jesus came to give me all of that. That for some reason he now has to do all of this for me. That we're in a transactional relationship where 
I will follow you, but you have to give me all of this too. And if you don't give me all of this, then I don't have to follow you because you didn't meet my expectations. Ah, but Jesus came not to fulfill my expectations, but to fulfill the purposes of God. And that changes everything. That changes how we look at things. That changes how we expect things. This Palm Sunday, I challenge you to lay down your expectations for Jesus and commit to living in a way that reflects God's purposes for you. So in that respect, I have four recommendations. Here they are. Agree to spend more time listening to God than telling him what to do. That's the first one. And that's a big one, because we're really good about going to God in prayer and saying, oh God, I need you to do this, I need you to do this, I need you to do this, I need you to do this. And then we sit back and wait for him to do it, because we expect him to do what we ask him to do. We need to spend more time listening. Listening to God speak to us. Maybe it's in the quiet moment when we stop all the noise around us and we can hear the Spirit speak to us. Maybe it says we read the Bible. Maybe it says we listen to a, a podcast. Maybe it's a book that we read. But we've got to stop talking all the time and start listening to God so we know what He has for us. Secondly, commit to obeying God even when it's uncomfortable. When he asks you to go places and to do things that you don't feel like doing, but it's what he needs you to do. And we need to commit to obey God, not just because it's easy or comfortable or it makes us happy, but because it's the right thing to do. Third, choose to trust God when things don't go as you want, because things never go as you want. You might have a moment where everything is humming in the same direction, but most of the time, things don't go the way we want them to go. And I have to make a choice. Do I trust God at that moment, or I decide to walk away because he's not meeting my expectations? I choose to trust him. I challenge you to trust him when things don't go as you want. And finally, decide to follow God no matter what. No matter what. No matter what happens, decide to follow God. Because Jesus never came to fulfill your desires, to meet all of your expectations. He came to do God's purposes. So let's not misunderstand Palm Sunday this year. Let's not misunderstand why Jesus came. He came because 3,500 years ago, God set in motion a process that would not just deliver people from Roman oppression, but from sin and death. That's why he came. Those are God's purposes. And that's what he did. It started that Palm Sunday. It was seen on Good Friday when he died on the cross, Nisan 15. And then two days later, it was ratified as a job well done when God raised him from the dead. And so we lay down our expectations and instead rise to fulfill God's purposes for us because that's what Jesus did on that first Palm Sunday. All right, if you would please just stand. We're going to conclude our service with prayer. And as I do, I want to remind you that we have some folks who are willing and ready to meet you underneath the screen. If you would like someone to pray with you, we know life can be challenging at times. And sometimes 
you feel overwhelmed, and you just need somebody to pray with you, there are going to be a couple of folks right over here underneath the screen on the left-hand side. You just go over there. Let them pray with you. Let them be an encouragement to you. Let them carry the burden with you in prayer. And we would love to do that. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you that he came to do what you had set in motion thousands of years earlier to show your power, to show your redemptive work. And that even as the deliverance from Egypt becomes a model for what happened when Jesus came to Jerusalem that day. So we begin to understand that people missed it. And that we too can sometimes miss why Jesus came. Forgive us for those times that we want him simply to meet our expectations to grant us all of our desires. And help us to walk in faith. To trust. To listen. To obey. And to stay in faith because you love us and you are there to help us in every situation for that we give you thanks today and we pray this in the name of jesus our redeemer our king and our lord and everyone said amen thank you god bless you